All right. Ooh, good morning. Good to good to see you guys this morning. So, we have to we should start with an important question. Tonight is the Super Bowl. Tom Brady is playing in the Super Bowl. Raise your hand if you are cheering for Tom Brady. Cheering? Yeah. Okay. Most people. Most people. Who's not cheering for Tom Brady? Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. A uh, few few that weren't cheering for Tom Brady even when he was the Patriots quarterback, and then a few people whose feelings have been very hurt, very hurt. Still processing the pain. I understand. Um, but it, it is a pleasure to get together with you guys here today. I know. Um, we have some weather coming, and so I wasn't sure how many people would show up for the service, and it seems like that didn't keep hardly anyone away, so it's great to be here with you all today. One of the most well-known paintings ever created was done by the British artist Richard Canton Woodville Jr. in 1894. The Illustrated London News commissioned him to complete a commemorative special series recreating the most famous British battles of history. One of the paintings that he did was titled The Charge of the Light Brigade. The scene depicted in the painting was the artist's interpretation of a real-life battle that happened October 25th 1854 during the Crimean War. In the painting, you see the first wave of a cavalry charge being ripped to shreds by gunfire and cannon. On that day, 670 British men on horseback had been ordered to charge against Russian artillery over a mile of open ground. The results were catastrophic. 118 men killed, 127 wounded, and about 60 taken prisoner. In the aftermath of the battle, there was plenty of blame to go around for the slaughter. The officers who had ordered and carried out the assault were motivated by a desire for glory more than any strategic objective. A strong argument can be made that England never should have been fighting in the Crimean War in the first place. It was kind of the Victorian version of Vietnam in the way the culture felt about this war. The issue that had initiated the conflict had actually already been resolved. There, they were there, the British were there, as part of what observers at the time termed an unholy alliance. Protestant England and Catholic France partnered with the Muslim Ottoman Empire to defeat the Orthodox Russians. The war was pointless. The battle was pointless. The charge was pointless. The unholy alliance that fought the Crimean War was not the first time or the last people with little in common have partnered to accomplish some goal. People's ability to work cooperatively carries with it great potential. 
A potential that can either be used for good or evil. In today's verses, we will see a group of people with nothing in common or very little in common come together for a shared purpose. In doing so, they participate in a great evil. While their motives vary, they share the blame for what their unified actions bring about. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. We will read through verse 16. That's Luke 23, beginning in verse 1, and we'll continue through verse 16. That's page 830 if you're using the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, him is Jesus, and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had longed to see him, and because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. First century Israel, in the time of Christ, was an incredibly divided place. It was a territory ruled by Roman political appointees that existed on top of local political structures that were a result of tradition and historical accident. The various power players did not get along. The native Jewish population had issues with the Romans. They were an occupied people. A hundred years prior, the Roman general Pompey had besieged Jerusalem. After taking the city, 
He entered into the holy of holies in the temple. The Romans had installed a puppet government at that time. Many Jews despised the intrusion of the Romans into their nation. They thought the taxes were too high. They thought their conquerors were morally bankrupt. The Romans weren't big fans of the Jews either. Prior to Jesus, there had been multiple revolts. The Jews had a reputation for being a cantankerous people to manage. Various sects of Jews didn't get along with each other either. There were those that wanted to fit in with the dominant Greco-Roman culture. The high priests were in this category. Others wanted to remain distinctly Jewish. This was the group the scribes and the Pharisees were in. The Roman leadership also had issues with one another. As in any high-powered situation, there were rivalries and jealousies. You could easily lose your power if you slipped up. You could gain power by capitalizing on someone else's slip-up. In today's verses, all of these dynamics are in play. Jesus' trial and eventual crucifixion required alliances that didn't normally exist. The Jewish leadership had to agree that Jesus should be killed. This is not something that they have the power to do themselves. They need the Romans to sign off. Only the Romans could execute someone. The Roman leadership is ambivalent about Jesus. Herod and Pilate allowing Jesus to be crucified has little to do with Jesus. They are just trying to keep the Jews calm. They don't want to have to report to Rome that a riot happened over some random Jewish rabbi from Galilee named Jesus. All the parties involved, the chief priests, scribes, Herod, and Pilate, can't usually agree on much of anything. They all agree on this day that, the, that they would be better off if Jesus was not in the world. They are unified by their resistance to what God is doing in the world. As we have moved through Luke, I've pointed out how the kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is a unified thing that exists under Jesus' lordship. The kingdom of this world is made up of many sub-kingdoms. The only thing that unifies these sub-kingdoms is that they share an enemy, which is the kingdom that Jesus is bringing about. You see this playing out in these verses. The various individuals and groups working together to get rid of Jesus are unified by their resistance to God's kingdom. Apart from that, we, they have little in common. We're going to spend the rest of our time today focusing on 
two common driving impulses that causes individuals and the kingdom alliances they come together to create to stand in opposition to the kingdom of the Lord. The first impulse that inevitably puts people in opposition to God's kingdom, I'm going to refer to as hedonism. Normally, hedonism is defined as the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence. Pilate, Herod, and high priests are all motivated by their hedonism. Jesus is a barrier to them being able to continue to do what they want to do. Initially, Herod is glad he gets to see Jesus, for he had long desired to see him. Why? Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod just wants to be entertained. When Jesus refuses to perform as desired, Herod decides to entertain himself by making a joke of Jesus, arraying him in splendid clothing. He thought it was hilarious. Pilate, who is a hedonist like Herod, thinks this joke is so funny that it becomes the foundation for their friendship moving forward. The chief priests make it clear why Jesus is a problem for them as well. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. They cannot tolerate Jesus interrupting their pleasurable lifestyles. It was fine when he stayed out there in Galilee. But even to this place, he's going to come on our turf and tell us how we need to live? Their grip on power allows them to operate as they please. They enjoy the best life has to offer and have no desire to stop. Like the Roman political leadership, their priority is their own pleasure. The chief priests, Herod and Pilate, would have fit well in the world today. You can see hedonistic impulses play out in almost every area of modern life. People are motivated by how they feel. What brings pleasure? Anything that does is seen is inherently good. An example of this in the modern world is how we view sex. Sex is used as a tool to bring about physical satisfaction. There is no deeper truth to it. This approach is a rejection of the way sex is treated throughout Scripture. In the Bible, sex is a union of man and woman, mind, spirit, and body. When the pursuit of pleasure is the overriding impulse in sex, the spiritual and psychological impacts are horrific. 
This example illustrates the general problem with hedonism. Hedonism confuses matters by putting the cart before the horse. God is not against us enjoying ourselves. He wants us to lead fulfilling lives. The pleasures sought in this world are all pleasures God created. The capacity we have to enjoy this world is a capacity that was given to us. The boundaries God places on our enjoyment are for our own good. If we simply follow pleasurable instincts, the effect is dehumanizing. We become increasingly animalistic. When pleasure is the goal, whatever means undertaken in pursuit of that goal are justified. This is certainly true of Pilate. We see evidence that Pilate knows, he knows right from wrong. His conscience is not totally dead. He says to the Jewish crowd, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. We know from the following verses that Pilate ends up changing his mind. He sends Jesus to the cross instead. His desire for maintaining his own comfort wins out over his clear sense of what is just. You see the same pattern Pilate exhibited play out all the time today. In the battle between a moral life built on God's truth and a life of pleasure, the latter is frequently victorious in our world. Pilots and others' pursuit of pleasure made them enemies of the kingdom of Christ. They put Jesus on the cross so that they could continue to eat, drink, and be merry. Any person that prioritizes pleasure will end up being an enemy of Jesus. The opposite of hedonism, the second impulse we are going to look at today is fundamentalism. The opposite of hedonism would seem to be a good thing. After all, we have just spent the past few minutes talking about how bad hedonism is. The opposite of a bad thing is a good thing, right? Well, not necessarily. The, absent, the opposite of freezing to death is burning alive. And the opposite of obesity is starvation. Taking an extreme position in response to a faulty position doesn't make you right, it just makes you wrong in a different way. Fundamentalism is often an overreaction to the errors of hedonism. The scribes referenced throughout Luke were often 
fundamentalists. They were reacting to the hedonism of the Roman and Jewish leadership. They, these scribes are part of the crowd that in these verses brings Jesus before Pilate in the first place. They're part of the crowd that is yelling that he cannot be let go, that he cannot be made free. Before we go farther, let me say that I am very sympathetic to fundamentalists. I grew up in a church that exhibited a soft version of fundamentalism, and my experience there was actually, was actually very positive. I was very well-loved in many ways. I see the appeal of fundamentalism. I feel it myself. I'm using the term fundamentalism to describe this recurring impulse, whereas hedonists prioritize comfort, fundamentalists idealize stability. Stability is a good thing, as comfort is. Fundamentalists go wrong in that their desire for stability causes them to perceive any variation from the norms they are comfortable with as a significant problem. They feel threatened by change. In every time period, there will be those that want to return to some previous time. Back when my grandmother, my dad's mom, was young, she actually got arrested for wearing an inappropriate bathing suit to the beach. This was back in like the late 1920s or early 30s. I think her bathing suit had sleeves that came down to about right here and to about right here. But this was the deal. You could see those elbows, and that was totally inappropriate. So she got arrested, right? Now, I'm not defending my grandmother. My point is that fundamentalists think of themselves as maintaining some unchanging standard when they are really just wanting to return to a time where life seemed more stable to them for whatever reason. Often, they are seeking to return to a time before they were even alive. The development of Jesus' kingdom inevitably comes into conflict with fundamentalism. You see this throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is not interested in a return to some idealized past. He knows what the past was like. He is aware that it was messed up. A significant portion of the whole company that arose to bring Jesus before Pilate were these scribes. These men were focused on the past. They had built their lives on thinking through how to recreate the past in the present. Throughout Jesus' ministry, they have been battling with him. Their concern has always been that Jesus, he's not traditional enough. Jesus is an agent of change. His focus is not on restoring the past. His priority is creating the future. The scribes vehemently accuse Jesus before Pilate because the future he is initiating is not the past they have idealized. 
While the hedonistic pilot, Herod and the chief priests are normally their enemies, if they can help them kill Jesus, that means for at least today, they can work together. The fundamentalist scribes use their voice to demand Pilate not let Jesus go free. There continue to be those in our world today that fight against what Jesus is working to bring about in this world because they yearn for a past that never really existed. Just as surely as the hedonist who seeks only today's comforts will end up in opposition to Jesus, so will the fundamentalist that seeks the stability of the past. Jesus is building on the past. He is not interested in recreating it in the present or the future. Christians are not immune to either hedonism or fundamentalism. Most everyone is a hedonist in some areas and a fundamentalist in others. Both impulses are prevalent in our society. Satisfaction and stability are both appealing. The truth is, they are both good. Love and many other things God created result in satisfaction. Stability is necessary for life to function. Apart from it, there is chaos. Despite their goodness, neither satisfaction or stability make for good ultimate commitments. Either impulse will put a person in conflict with the kingdom of Christ. Hedonists, those that base their lives on the pursuit of satisfaction, cannot help but view Jesus as an inconvenience they would rather wash their hands up. He impedes their ability to live as they want to live. For fundamentalists, those committed to the pursuit of stability, Jesus is a threat. He is focused on changing the world. We need to be careful who we partner with in this world. There are plenty of battles we can fight in our lives. We must make sure we are fighting on the right side of the ones that matter. It is easy. It is easy to end up fighting against what Jesus is doing. Even when we think we are fighting for what is right and good. This world offers us innumerable unholy alliances to participate in. Allying with, allying with Jesus Christ is the only holy option. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in alliance with you, that you have made that possible for us, Lord. I pray that you would help us as we discern our own minds, Lord, as we discern the impulses that are there that 
are, are seeking good things so often, but are seeking those good things through the wrong means, through the wrong partnerships, and the wrong ways, Lord. I pray that you would convict us in the ways that we have adopted some, some value, some impulse that goes against your kingdom, that goes against what Jesus is doing in this world, Lord. I pray that we would not be like the high priests. I pray that we would not be like the scribes, Lord. I pray that we would follow Jesus Christ. I ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.